1: Hello, and welcome to Money Talks on Economist Radio. I'm Patrick Lane, Deputy Digital Editor here at The Economist. And on today's show, what to look for in Greece's draft budget...
2: The Prime Minister's come in wanting to show that the country's open to business. And as part of that, the government in its budget is expected to announce cuts to corporate taxes and cuts to income taxes.
1: And a taste of fine wine. From China.
3: Part of the Chateau Lafitte Gambit is actually to say, you know, you can have a good wine produced in China. It doesn't need to be, you know, a state-produced plonk.
1: But first, WeWork is in deep trouble. Just six weeks ago, the company, known for its trendy co-working spaces, was one of the most valuable young firms in the United States it was notionally valued by its private investors at around $47 billion. But yesterday, on September 30th, WeWork announced that it would scrap its initial public offering altogether with no indication of when it might try again. Last week, the company ousted its charismatic chief executive, Adam Newman. It had previously delayed its flotation amid concern from investors over mismanagement and heavy losses. So what does this mean for the future of the business and others like it? Vijay Swarren is a U.S. business editor here at The Economist. Hi, Vijay. Hello there, Patrick. Vijay, to start off, people were asking questions about WeWork's business model before the attempted IPO,
4: weren't they? So what were they worried about? So there are several concerns that have been apparent for a while about WeWork. One is its fundamental business model, which is taking out long-term leases, 10, 15-year leases on property, uh, and chopping up the the properties into attractive, smaller office spaces and leasing those out for a higher rent, but on shorter-term basis. So there was a maturity mismatch between short-term offices, often to small and medium enterprises or gig employees looking for a little bit of space. But they had on their books $47 billion worth of liabilities on these long-term leases. And that was one of the important concerns. Another one was always the kind of flamboyance, and uh, idiosyncrasies of Adam Newman, its co-founder. He um, was known as a party boy, talked about tequila in the office and was smoking pot on the side. Uh, He had uh, lavish parties for his employees including a Glastonbury-style summer festival in Britain and a party in Los Angeles every year. These were – Overlooked by uh, the private investors is uh, a bit like Elon Musk or the early founders of Google. Uh, maybe you needed some certain magic to create a tech company out of what was essentially a property company. Uh, but when these idiosyncrasies were brought to the public market, the more common sense investors that tend to invest in IPOs said, We're not buying this. So why did investors' concerns intensify to the point they've now reached
1: of having to withdraw the IPO altogether?
4: I think fundamentally the questions were about governance. Uh, People were very concerned about what appeared to be a CEO who had excessive control of the company, but more than that, behaved in ways that were apparently self-dealing. There were examples of putting family members uh, in the company to run entirely unpromising divisions unrelated to property, for example, as well as uh, self-dealing through properties that Mr. Newman owned that he was leasing back to WeWork, which created a conflict of interest and so on. So the governance and the way they were encoded in the prospectus worried investors quite a lot. I think that's the number one reason. The second reason is the valuation the company was seeking. Forget the $47 billion valuation imputed by the last time that SoftBank invested in it. People were not ready to see this as even a $15 billion company. Uh, And so I think that uh, the mood had soured in public markets after Uber, after Lyft and a number of other IPOs that haven't done very well. These are the sorts of warning signs that investors said uh, we're not going to invest and certainly not at a valuation that the company was seeking of $47 billion or, or even higher. Its investment bankers had talked about $65 billion or even higher. It was too much for the markets to stomach.
1: Right. In the end, it looked like it would have done well, even to get a valuation of ten billion when it was going to be listed. Right. So- That's
4: right. I mean, that was the last number people were talking about. But I have to be honest. Once the cycle of pessimism began, it would have been lucky like to even pull off a flotation at this time, which is why they pulled it. And you know, who knows if they'll come back to the market at another time. But the plan is to hold off until market sentiment changes. Okay, so
1: the flotation is off at least for the time being. So, where does WeWork go now? What will it have to do to restore confidence in it, to maybe even rebuild its finances to some extent? So, what's the future look like for WeWork?
4: They've taken some steps already. Uh, Adam Newman has voted. Along with other members of the company's leadership, to step aside. He voted for his own removal from uh, the CEO post, although he'll stay on as, as chairman, and two other executives have been promoted to be co CEOs, grown ups in the room. Uh, as opposed to the party boy style of management. So that should help a little bit. They've already talked about um, slowing down the pace of new leases. Uh, it must be noted the company was losing money hand over fist in part because it played up the Silicon Valley strategy of blitz scaling or going for growth, the way that tech companies often lose money early on, get scale, and then start to show that once they have market dominance – they can produce superior profits or returns. It didn't work with this company. And so now they're going to have to scale back their ambitions in terms of growth, but also make some deep cuts in some of their lavish appointments. Uh, some of the freebies like uh, free-flowing beer and nitro coffee and fruit-infused water, you may start to see some of that disappear. Uh, they tended to have more employees working as curators and community managers. They're probably going to have to pare back that, which will affect customer service, of course. And so these are the kinds of hard changes they're going to have to look into to reduce their cash burn rate. If they make no changes, if they were simply to continue on the rate they were at before flotation and, and with the cash on hand of about $2.5 billion that they have, they would run out of money by mid-next year.
1: These employees with these rather sort of odd job titles, you know, the, the curators and, and so forth, which gave WeWork this sort of techie feel and gave it its sort of extra appeal to, to the small tech companies who are its tenants. Was there really anything – to this? Was there actually some substance to it that gave it some proper edge over other property companies or was it all froth?
4: My view is that fundamentally, it's a property company, a very good, very clever property company. Now, what they did was by reimagining the office, something that hasn't been reinvented in 50 years, uh, rethinking what the modern digital workforce uh, would need and want in workspaces, they expanded the addressable market. What WeWork brought was not just, again, the fruit-infused water and uh, some of the little frills. They uh, actually brought a technology platform, for example, lots of AI embedded into how they designed office space, uh, how much room is given to lunching areas and community spaces, uh, how much room is allocated to private space versus boardrooms or meeting rooms. And so uh, they put a lot of thought into something that most of us – move into an office and it's sort of a cookie cutter space and then no changes made for a decade during the duration of the lease, really. We're stuck with it. And so the idea of a dynamic living office space with uh, multiple companies, with uh, curated events of relevance to you, professional development events or just a beer party at the end of the week with other people in that space, it made work a fun place to go into. So I do think there was more than just a simple property company. Um, but was it worth $47 billion? Obviously not.
1: Okay. So what implications do WeWork's troubles have for other companies and for markets more broadly? Is there something maybe cracking in the the tech IPO market here?
4: Well, you're absolutely right that I think you know we're seeing really the end of the unicorn age, a certain period in our early 21st century capitalism where private markets were heavily favored over public markets. Um, companies, especially private tech companies, stayed private for much, much longer and they were able to get capital in much later rounds of funding thanks in part to funders like SoftBank, which was a big funder both of WeWork, but also of Uber, for example, which had its own IPO recently and which was a disaster. And so in that cloud, really, with a difficult market was uh, the one in which WeWork came for its flotation. And the mood had soured quite a bit. The dream was gone in a way. And so people were not buying the unicorn magic already, even before WeWork turned up. And WeWork is a particularly problematic unicorn. Thank you, VJ. It's been my pleasure. You can read more about the problems
1: WeWork is facing in the current edition of The Economist. And why not try a subscription? Go to economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or £12. Next up, Greece's new centre-right government, led by Kyriakos Mitsotakis, is preparing to announce its first draft budget on Monday. Mr Mitsotakis has promised to propel economic growth, but he has a hard task ahead. The country is still bound by a debt relief deal agreed under the previous government. Last year, the European Union allowed Greece to exit its third and final bailout, despite a vast debt burden of 180% of GDP. The deal offered some relief, but its terms were eye-wateringly tight. And before the new budget can be accepted, Mr Mitsotakis will have to make sure that his plans can honour this agreement. Rachana Shambhog is our European economics correspondent and Rachana's been in Athens recently looking at this in more detail.
2: Hi Rachana. Hello Patrick.
1: So do we know what this budget will contain?
2: Well, the government has come in on a platform of boosting economic growth. We've experienced a severe depression, really, in the years of the crisis. It's returned to growth since 2016, but those rates have been quite anemic at about 2% a year. So the prime minister has come in um, wanting to show that the country is open to business. And as part of that, the government in its budget is expected to announce cuts to corporate taxes and cuts to income taxes.
1: And what's the broader significance of the budget?
2: The new government is from the centre-right New Democracy Party. They're replacing um, the government led by Alexis Tsipras, who was from Syriza, the left-wing party. The difference here seems to be that the new government is much more open in its desire to bring investors back to Greece to boost investment in Greece. We know that if you look at GDP figures, investment is about two-thirds below its peak in 2007. So his emphasis really is on doing what needs to be done to ensure that investors come back in.
1: Now, the EU deal imposed some very strict long-term controls on Greece's public finances. Is there an argument for loosening those now?
2: I think there might be. Let me tell you a little bit about the terms of the deal. Greece is given some um, interest rate relief on some of its loans. Um, Some other loans have had their maturities extended. In return, though, Greece must run a primary surplus, which means um, a budget surplus before it pays interest, of 3.5% of GDP for every year between... Now and 2022, and thereafter it has to run a primary surplus of 2% out to 2060. These are really stringent. Um, Only a handful of countries have managed to pull off something like this, and most of them tend to be resource rich. The IMF on Friday, just gone, the 26th of September, argued that it thinks these targets should be looser because they've led to underinvestment in public resources and restriction on spending on social services.
1: So if these conditions were loosened, would that have a beneficial effect on the Greek economy?
2: It seems likely that yes, it would. Part of the problem of the Greek economy is a lack of demand. So by allowing the government to spend a little more, it would be boosting demand. On top of that, it seems likely that if Greece were to grow faster, its public debt ratio would come down quicker as well. So in a way, it would be helping Greece's creditors.
1: Okay, but what would the significance be for the wider eurozone? Because Greece is a pretty small economy in the context of the currency block, isn't it?
2: That's right. Greece is less than 2% of eurozone GDP. So um, looser fiscal policy in Greece alone won't have a big macroeconomic impact on the Eurozone. But Greece is a symbol, I think. Greece is a symbol of the division between the northern and the southern member states of the Eurozone. The reason why we have this deal, which is, as I've said, suboptimal, is because northerners don't want to be seen to be letting Greece off the hook.
1: To many people, one of the abiding memories of the Eurozone crisis, or even the latter stages of the Eurozone crisis, I suppose, were those protests in Athens a few years ago, which brought Theresa to ultimately to office. And that's real anger between the north and the south. and A lot of that anger was directed in Greece, at Germany in particular. Do you think those days are now completely past? Or is there any sort of sign of that, that that still rumbles on, this could cause a longer term problem for the Eurozone?
2: My impression when I went to Athens was that those days are in the past. I think the country seems to be looking ahead now. And there is a sense of hope from the people that I spoke to, certainly, that Greece was on the up, that the change was coming and that, you know, businesses were feeling more confident about the fact that the new government would come in and loosen some of the red tape that really affects business. Given what
1: we know about Mr. Matsutakis' plans. Is there more that he should be doing? I mean, we've talked about the macroeconomic numbers, if you like, the budget deficit conditions and all that. But at a a sort of microeconomic level, and you mentioned red tape, there are all sorts of regulations I suppose one could look at, other structural things. So are there microeconomic things that he should be doing that would help the economy to advance?
2: Yes, I think there are a series of things he needs to be doing. In fact, he has quite a daunting to-do list. It's not quite microeconomic, but the banking sector needs some work. The um, proportion of non-performing loans is still very high in Greece, and um, the infrastructure to deal with that is still missing. And then if we talk about the more microeconomic issues, you know, businesses tend to complain that it takes very long time to get licenses. Registering property is still quite difficult in Greece. You know, Often businesses get ensnared in legal disputes that can take on the- Average five years to resolve. These are also areas where Mr Mitsotakis will need to do some reform. Um, To be fair to the previous government, they did implement some, but there was always a sense with the creditors that the previous government didn't own the reforms enough to push them through.
1: So to come back to to where we started with the immediate event ahead of us, the 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 budget on Monday. It's a draft budget, so. What sort of steps does it have to go through before it comes into effect?
2: Part of the process is quite similar um, to that experienced by other Eurozone countries. They will submit their draft budget to the European Commission, which then assesses whether the budgets comply with Europe's fiscal rules. What is different for Greece is that the Commission will also assess whether the budget complies with the terms of the debt relief deal. And an opinion on that will only come out, I think, in November, after which the budget then will be finalised in Parliament. So there's a couple of months here for negotiation should the initial plans not comply with what Europe is expecting.
1: Thank you, Rachana.
2: Thanks, Patrick.
0: Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK.
1: Our correspondent Stephanie Studer has been enjoying sea breezes, blue skies and sun-soaked vines. Not, as you might think, in the south of France or the heel of Italy, but in the industrial heartlands of China's northern province of Shandong. Among the no fewer than 63 wineries nestled in the Penglai Valley is one belonging to Chateau Lafitte Rothschild, which has just cracked open its first Chinese vintage. We should point out that a branch of the Rothschilds own shares in the Economist parent company. Anyway, Stephanie, our senior China business correspondent, was there to taste it. Hello, Stephanie.
3: Hello, Patrick.
1: Tell us about the great
0: event.
3: Well, I went to the Long Dai Estate, which is uh, Chateau Lafitte's uh, first Chinese estate in Shandong province. This was a tasting, Uh, they've uncorked their first vintage from 2017, showed us around the lovely estate and the 30 hectares of vineyards which they planted a decade ago now. They flew in 250,000 vine stocks from France and now they're ready to show their first Chinese wine to the world. And joining us throughout the tour and the tasting was Saskia of the Rothschild family, who runs the wine business. And she was answering our questions and uh, talking to us about the prospects for this rather bold undertaking in China.
2: Then it was a story of patience. I am always very amazed by the fact that in China everything goes very fast. 和他, but in winemaking if you go fast you don't last
1: Now Stephanie, China isn't exactly famous for its vineyards, so how does it feel to see vineyards in this industrial area? Are the wineries and industry cheek by jowl or is there or do you really feel like you're going into a sort of rural winemaking area?
3: Well, actually, the short drive from the airport, which is Yantai Airport, just by the coast, about 30 minutes to the winery, it doesn't particularly feel like you're in China. Um, there are many other vineyards. This is actually China's main wine producing region, and it's been making wine for a century now. But a lot of it is mass market, state produced wine, so not particularly good. And in fact, when Chateau Lafitte decided to set up there, people were rather surprised that it chose this part of China. The country actually has a dozen wine-producing regions. Um, Shandong, although it produces a lot, is not known for Grand Cru. And that's partly because of the climactic conditions. It's by the sea, and in the summer, it gets drenched by monsoons, which is problematic for growers there.
1: But now that's changing, Stephanie. So is Chateau Lafitte Rothschild going out on a limb or is the fine wine market in China taking root?
3: It's certainly taking root. In fact, they're not the first to do this. Um, We could see from their estate a Scottish castle on the horizon, which is also in Shandong, which started producing its own fine wine a decade before Lafitte. Um, set up by a Yorkshireman and in Yunnan in the southwest LVMH also began to produce its own wine a few years ago.
1: Well that's remarkable it all sounds very vibrant and one doesn't usually associate Yorkshire with fine wines either so it seems that there's a huge variety of, of wine making activity going on in China but anyway I have to ask you the most important question you got to try the wine I believe so how was it?
3: It's a lovely $330 bottle of wine. There were some um, proper wine critics there, including James Suckling, who has given it a rating of 94 out of 100 points, which classifies it as outstanding, um, which is really quite remarkable for a Chinese wine.
1: So I seen that at that price, they're trying to sell this wine to rich Chinese people rather than the mass market.
3: Yes. In fact, Saskia said that what she's really hoping to do is to appeal to Chinese lovers of wine who think that having a famous French label on something that is homegrown is something to be proud of. So she's really hoping that they are going to choose the Chinese wine over perhaps a Bordeaux uh, from their original region. From speaking to some Shanghainese drinking uh, wine at a local bar, I think that might be tough. There's still a cachet attached to a wine that comes from France. And as some said to me, if you're willing to spend that much, then you'll probably fork out a little more for what's seen as the proper thing.
1: And is a mass market for wine developing in China? I mean, presumably that was part of the idea with the state-owned. Is that sort of market developing at all?
3: Yes, it is. It's been around for some time, but it's certainly growing. I mean, wine as a proportion of the alcohol market in China is still quite tiny. It's just a couple of percent. Um, Beer and Baijiu, the local strong spirit here, still do extremely well. But I think that part of the Chateau Lafitte gambit is actually to say, you know, you can have a good wine produced in China. It doesn't need to be, you know, state produced plonk.
1: OK. Now, people always say that having started on wine, you should never switch to beer. But just this once, let's take a chance, because this week, Anheuser-Busch InBev, which is the world's biggest brewery, I believe, made its debut on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. Uh, solid performance. IPO raised $5 billion or so. Why do you think this was a success, if we can count that a success? And what does it tell us about the, the beer market in the region?
3: Well, in AB InBev's case, interestingly, they decided a few months ago to hive off the Australian operations, which were part of the Asian business that they were floating on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. And uh, after that, there seemed to be quite a lot of interest from investors. And that's because it had suddenly become much more of a sort of developing market and China story um, to invest in. So I think people are very excited about the prospects for premium beer. I mean, there is a, a vast market already in China with some state-owned giants that do extremely well, but higher-end beer has really grown recently, and I think that uh, just like wine, it's going to do extremely well, and uh, AB InBev knows that it's at the forefront of that.
1: Cheers, Stephanie. Cheers, Patrick. That's all for this edition of Money Talks. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts. I'm Patrick Lane, and in London, this is The Economist.